UX Podcast Episode 193. This is UX Podcast. I am Pat Axbom. And I'm James Roy Lawson. Balancing business, technology, and people every other Friday from Stockholm, Sweden, with listeners in 177 countries from Hungary to Romania. Now, Per and I were recording this the, the morning directly af- after um, our um, general election here in mm. Sweden, which, which makes today's topic and, and guest um, really very topical and, and relevant. Um, Dana Chisel is an expert in civic design. She's done work for the National Institute of Standards and Technology into, amongst other things, the language and standards of ballot instructions. She's also worked with testing poll worker documentation for the Voluntary Voting System Guidelines. And Dana also teaches design in government at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and last year polished off a two-year stint as generalist problem solver for the United States Digital Service in the Obama White House, doing user research and civic design across agencies. So for Business for Buttons, we talked to Dana about the complexities of democracy when it comes to the vast number of different designs of the actual process of voting. I've realized I've actually learned quite a lot already from you today. Oh, that's excellent. I have realized that I had some misunderstandings about America, uh, or some things maybe I'd forgotten. Um, but I still wrote down in my notes, America is so broken. <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry to all the American listeners out there. Um, but it was, um, it was fascinating to, to, to learn more about the dem- democratic process, the, the voting process in the US. Um, can you tell us a little bit, there was Bill was a character you, you Bill used Bill was a real person yeah. uh, who we met as part of a study that we were doing in California uh, about uh, the challenges that people face who are on the low end of civic engagement and um, propensity to vote. Um, and uh, Bill was in an adult reading program as part of the public library system in California. And um, he was one of the people who we met in Berkeley. Super charming guy, um, came in all sunlight and, and charm and uh, sat down to, uh, as one of the participants for testing this prototype voter guide that we had. And uh, uh, told me right away that he had trouble reading, that he was just learning, and uh, that he didn't know anything about voting because he'd been incarcerated. And um, I think he thought at that moment that he was disqualified from voting. I, I, th- I thought that. I mean, I think me yeah. and you both thought you could vote in guess, the that, U.S. Yeah. 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 And that is not unusual in the U.S. In some states, that would be true. If you had committed a felony and done time uh, in prison, you might never get your voting rights restored. Um, But in California, where Bill lived, uh, 
after he did his time, he completed his sentence, all he had to do was register to vote again. Um, but he, he didn't know do. that. All he had to do. He d- yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, giving the giveaway. Good, <laughs> Good point. But he didn't even know that mm. until he read our prototype uh, plain language voter bill of rights where he saw that he had a right to vote even though he had committed a felony mm-hmm. and done time in prison. And so he was super excited about that and that gave him all kinds of energy for going through the usability test that we were doing. We had a really wonderful session. He, we got amazing feedback because of his uh, low literacy. We learned a ton about what was really helpful to him and what was not. Uh, when we finished up the session, he got to register to vote while he was still at the library. And he was, you, you helped him to register. He was super excited. Actually, my uh, we did this project in partnership with the League of Women Voters, which actually takes people of all genders, but it started as a suffragist uh, organization in the early 1900s, and they have just kept the name, mm. the League of Women Voters. So our partners were there with us, and... Uh, one of, one of our partners just brought Bill over to her laptop. There was free Wi-Fi in the library, pulled up the state of California website, got him uh, signed up, and in two minutes he was registered to vote. And I, I thought that you showed a, um, a picture of the, um, of the, the, the voting um, form as well. So you compared mm. for several voting forms. Um, I mean, in fact, all the information you showed from the American elections was was incredible. The the, the <laughs> language and the amount of, of text, the amount of, text. And the amount of pages. I mean, I, I is it especially broken in the U.S. or is I mean, <laughs> it, it seemed like you've looked at different countries and how they. Uh, we have, yeah. yeah, I have spent some. Yeah, my yeah. team, my team, uh, has over the years come from different countries as well, um, and so yeah, we have had some experience with that. Uh, voting in America is different because the system of governance is Mm. different our flavor of democracy is very direct so there are many more offices uh to elect people to uh and there are many more uh, opportunities for uh the general voting population to vote on whether particular things should become law Uh, And it's more in some places and less in other places. The example that I showed from San Francisco from the 2016 election had 40 questions on it between the county and the state. This is extreme, but not unusual uh, these days um, as the flavor of state legislatures change uh, up and down on the political scale uh, more or fewer questions may show up on the ballot. Mm. Uh, but also in a place like California, and this is true in a few other Western states, uh, there is something called a voter initiative. So uh, people who are uh, registered voters can um, put out a petition and get signatures to have uh, a question put on the ballot that oh, wow. would yeah. become law if mm. it's passed. It's quite correct, I guess, from a democratic point of view to have all these elect- electable positions and, and all these questions. It's very direct oh. democracy. In oh. theory, yes. Yeah, 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 in, absolutely, exactly. in theory. Yeah. But you know, we, something that we're, we're aware of, at least in Europe, is, is, the, is the low voter turnout in, in the US. It's right. something that's always painted as well. You know, like only a 
only a third of Americans vote or have the right to vote. So on. There's all these low numbers they keep. I'm, mm. I'm certainly getting them wrong now, but there's all these low numbers compared to um, European elections that are, are ta were taught or were fed by the media. Yeah. And that was another aspect of what I've learned from you today as well, about how that figure is, is probably not necessarily... It's not saying what I thought it was saying. Uh -huh. What did you think it was well, saying? Well, because the accessibility, because of, of, of mm. the... Um, when you showed us the, the um, journey maps or the, the process mm. order and, and the, the complications of, 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 um, of voting, uh, not only the, the complications with the form, right. but the whole process, right. that made me realise that voter turnout wasn't it's really a much what I thought it was. It's it a much bigger... Then. Uh, well, I had another... Yeah. I couldn't just blame lazy Americans for not getting out and voting. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for example. No, yeah, exactly. Yeah, true. Right, mm. because there are all these hurdles that you have yeah. to get over mm. uh, before you can even mm. get to mm. the to having a ballot mm. in your hands. There are a lot of decisions to make mm. too. So uh, one of the ways that uh, we try to make it easier for people to um, to get a ballot and cast it is through something that by election geeks is called convenience voting. So um, uh, in European countries, it's called advanced voting. So you can right, yeah. get a ballot ahead of election day uh, and uh, and cast it early. You might mm. do that by mail or you might do that physically in person at a place that's set up to, to be kind of a polling place. Um, but again, this is a thing that's not uniform across the state. So the rules are different. So if you have moved from California to New York, for example, uh, the, the rules around early voting are c entirely different. Mm. And so it's on the voter to learn, uh, is there even early voting? If there is, where is it being held? What are the hours? What are the days? Those are all decisions that you have to make, right? And if you don't make an actual plan to say, I'm going to vote on Saturday at 2 in the afternoon after my kid's soccer practice, uh, it doesn't get done because there's so many things to have to remember to learn and make decisions about and then to go and do. Some states have solved some of this problem by um, allowing all vote by mail. So, for example, in Oregon was the first, but Washington has followed, and Colorado as well. And now some counties in California just send a ballot to every single registered voter ahead of every election. And voters have the options then of mailing their marked ballot back or putting it in a, an official drop box uh, or taking it to a polling place yeah. on election day. Uh, so that removes a lot of the obstacles and the decisions that you have to make. Exactly. Um, and drop boxes are located in high traffic areas, like uh, at libraries or at transit points where people would be switching buses, for example, mm. or switching from the subway to a bus. Um, and, uh, and all of that is very carefully planned out about where those things go. But in other states... Um, like uh, like Virginia, uh, there's there isn't early voting. Uh, there's a thing. This is my favorite all-time thing about elections. <laughs> they allow a thing called in-person absentee voting. So that sounds very curious. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so there's an uh, an old legal practice that you can vote absentee, which is.
basically voting by mail, but the absentee part is that you are absent from the place where you would vote on the day of uh, the election. So you can apply, uh, the intention originally on this was that you can apply for a ballot that would be sent to you, and then you mark it, and you put it in a special envelope, and you send it back. Mm -hmm. Um, But with in-person absentee, you can just go to your clerk's office or your registrar's office uh, and fill out a form applying for an absentee ballot and vote it while you are there. So this is the in-person absentee part. (laughs) But you have to have an excuse. You must have a reason. There are 19, I think there are 19 uh, legally sanctioned reasons in Virginia that you would be allowed to vote. Because, yeah, you have to fill in the form and apply. Right, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So, so, so yeah. the, you see this continuum. Uh, so yeah, another yeah. hurdle to mm. right to mm. cross to, to deal with if you're actually registered mm. to vote. That's right. So what you found in your research is that there is this expected journey or path that voters, most voters, you think follow, and you found that well, that's not necessarily true. A lot of voters follow a completely different path. Perhaps some of the same stops. Right. But in a different direction. That's right. Uh, and this is not that uncommon, right? Yeah. It, it, mm. If you work with mm. large mm. organizations, the organization has one model of what the process should be, and their users or customers or mm. members or patients have a very different point of view about what that process mm. is. These are different mental models. And it's always a percentage game. I mean, it's, it's never 100% That's right. that follow it anyway. Yeah, it's yeah. extremely rare, mm. yeah. Uh, and so that is basically what we found with voting in elections based on the research that we did. Um, And when we present this stuff to uh, people who administer elections, they recognize the institutional process that we identified right away. Like this is very familiar to them. It is mostly calendar driven because there are a lot of legal deadlines that uh, open up certain periods and close certain periods Uh, and uh, there's a sequence that they that they just always follow. And the assumption until we did this work was that voters follow this also. Mm. Uh, but what we saw was that that is not the case, yeah. that um, uh, voters come at this uh, in a much uh, different orientation. Uh, and that really starts with, why are we holding this election? What actually is happening? What's on the ballot that I need to know about that I might feel like investing my time and energy in uh, diving into this mm. whole process. And uh, all the other decisions uh, fall from that. So you had a quote, which I'm not getting right now, but it was along the lines like, the map is not a solution. Mm. It's a snapshot of our current understanding. Right. Which, I mean, mm. that's true of every journey map we ever make, but it's not something we talk about. No, it's mm. that's mm. right. Mm. Uh, and I think... <laughs> I have I have worked in organizations where somebody has said, let's make a journey map. Uh, and that is like a product yeah, <laughs> of the design yes, team. Yeah. But that's not mm. the reason for mm. doing it. The reason for doing it is, uh, well, there are a lot of reasons mm. for doing it. Our reasons for doing it were to uh, understand what we thought we knew mm. about the process, uh, figure out kind of where the mm. gaps were mm. in our knowledge and understanding, mm. Uh, of the process, not just between election administrators and voters, but for voters. 
some of some parts of the journey that I laid out today for the privileged voter and for the burdened voter are our data is a little bit thin. So over the next few years, we will be doing more work in those particular areas. But it gives us a tool. You know, it's a boundary object. Mm-hmm. It, gave, it gives us a tool for saying, this is what we know right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, what will be different in a year or in three years mm-hmm. based on the work that we are doing? And can we fill in the gaps or do things move around? Uh, not only because we learn more about what the experience is like, but because... Mm-hmm. Uh, the laws change or the culture changes or the political landscape changes. Uh, and so uh, while I've been presenting this particular journey for uh, a year, year and a half, something like that, I expect in a couple more years it will look quite yeah. a bit different. Yeah. I'd hope that uh, as designers, we I, I certainly notice that as I get older, that I realized a lot of the artifacts I produce, uh, they're just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to recognize that. You just have to figure out. Did you just do I, a crappy I, job? I, I, know, or? I know it's wrong. Uh, I, or I have to assume that it's wrong. I just have to fight to get it the least amount of wrong. And that's what I'm doing as <laughs> a designer right. always. I'm or, always or, trying to make it less wrong. No, I or think fight right. to make sure yeah. you get a, yeah. um, a chance to mm. do the second version. Mm. Yeah. Because some, mm. too often that first guess is a first guess. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's part of your learning process. Mm. Right. Well, uh, Jared Spool and I are teaching a workshop tomorrow mm. on uh, deconstructing delight. Mm. And one of the things that we'll have everybody do is make journey maps ba- based on just their assumptions right. to start with. Mm. And, then, uh, and then we'll go from there. Yeah. you got to start somewhere. <laughs> exactly. And yeah. um, as long as you mm. don't... Uh, as long as you look at the assumptions as a baseline mm. for doing the work mm. of understanding what the experience really yeah. is, uh, then you're probably in good Because the, the power of the artifact is that it's a conversation starter. So that's we right. can talk about it. It's not true, but we can talk about it because it's easier to point at something. That's right. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's, uh, yes, it's a tool for shared mm. understanding. Mm. Yeah. And the other very important insight, of course, that you had was, uh, contrary to James's belief, that there is no voter apathy. Aha. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is exactly. a bit controversial. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So uh, you're saying that people really do want to vote. They try really hard. And, and Bill was a great example of that. Uh, but there are just too many obstacles. Yeah. And the difficulty of each step. Yeah. And then there's the, too much. what I tend to call ego depletion. You have a, uh, you have <laughs> a set amount of energy that you can act, be expected to uh, exert on a given task. And then... The more obstacles you encounter, the less That's effort right. you can actually put into the next That's obstacle. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Each person has a yeah. finite pool of uh, resources yeah. to expend mm. on this. And, uh, and, uh, even, and it's, it's not even about only the... I, I was thinking today, actually, the weather <laughs> is great. Right. The op- a lot of the obstacles I've encountered today, are I don't mind them at all because I'm happy anyway because of the weather. Right. So there are other obstacles, of course, in our environment. Well, weather, yeah. yes, that's, that's a good example, actually. Weather plays a part yeah. in all kinds of things, yeah. including showing up for an election. Mm. If the weather is yeah. terrible, you might not show up. Mm. If the weather is great, mm. you might not show up. So what you want is just sort of mediocre, normal weather. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why we will all build the dome cities in the future. To that's right. Ensure voters. Ensure voting. Yeah. Temperate. <laughs> not interesting weather. Yeah. But what's um because they, they do care and they what did you say that they need to what is it that drives them to vote? Um, 
usually well, in our research what we hear is a couple of factors drive people to vote one is um simple habit um they were uh, brought up in a household where this voting was not a question and being engaged in their community was just part of their lives um, and those habits can be built uh, but the other reason that people often take part and why you see across elections in the United States um, big bumps in participation for some elections. Mm. For example, in 2008, we had a black guy running for president mm. for the first time, and that was kind of a big deal. So mm. people really turned out. And it wasn't just that he was a black guy. It was that he uh, held uh, policy positions that people believed would make their lives better. For example... I know you guys live in a civilized country, but in the United <laughs> States, we don't have uh, national yeah. health care. We don't have socialized medicine. Mm -hmm. So people have to buy insurance. And there were around 40 million people who had no insurance whatsoever uh, in 2008. And so the idea that this man could be elected to office and that people would have good, affordable health care was a huge motivator for a lot of people to turn out to vote who had not ever voted before in some cases, mm. uh, even though they were grown adults who'd been eligible for a long time. So we see bumps like that. And what that really is, we think, uh, even at the local level, is there are issues on the, on the platform in the discussion that touch people directly. They they are feeling some kind of a pain that they think will be addressed uh, by that candidate or by that question. And um, uh, that is when those folks get motivated. Um, but if there's not a passionate, very deeply held set of issues, sometimes those folks are less likely to show up. Yeah. And then if you... If you are another country that would like the outcome of the U.S. election to turn out a particular way, you might target people on social media who are in that kind of vulnerable spot. And uh, it's easy to pick up the data also. Mm -hmm. For example, you, you can know who voted and who did not vote in the last presidential election. This is purchasable data in the United States. So it's also easy for a variety of reasons, like you have a revenue model of advertising, um, to target individual users of social media mm. and to send them messages that will uh, either try to change their minds or maybe just exhaust them to the point where they'll stay home. Right. And that happened to a lot of people, Yeah, yeah. we think. That's a great example because you're either exhausting people or you're providing them with the energy to actually mm -hmm. go out and do something. Mm -hmm. So, well, what we're saying here, mm -hmm. though, is that uh, <coughs> democracy design problem mm -hmm. on, on at least two fronts. Yeah. That the the actual process for, for voting, for registering, to knowledge collection yep. to do with voting, registering and then mm -hmm. actually voting is complicated. Yeah. Um, uh, reading age that mm. you need to understand the material mm. is way off the scale compared to what's required. Right. But then at the opposite end, We've we've got 
various services, mm. like you say, that sell advertising, advertising-based models mm. that are eating away from that direction mm. and targeting you individually mm -hmm. to push you one way or the other. Mm -hmm. So we're right. It's, it's the it's the pincer attack. So yeah, you have to fight it from two directions. Yeah, right, right. So even if yeah. even if none of the social media um, scenario had played out at mm. all, there were still all these hurdles for mm. people to get through. Uh, in many places in the United States. And then when you add that level of having to split the signal from the noise, uh, that's often more challenging than people can deal with. And they just opt out. Well, I've certainly learned a lot today. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I mean, it's one thing saying that we should, we should make um, forms more usable, more easy to read, and, 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 and so on. Mm. But um, how can how can we as designers help democracy? Mm. So uh, there are a bunch of different ways uh, in the U.S. especially, but in other countries as well. The people who work in polling places are often not government employees, but who are temporary workers who are volunteers. You get paid, but it's not very much. It's a long day. Uh, you have to take training to do the thing. But then this sounds pretty much like the jobs we all have already. So, yeah. you know. Um, uh, so volunteering to work the polls would be amazing, mm. actually, to have all the UX people on the planet doing that. For one thing, the average age of poll workers in the United States and Canada, and I heard today in Sweden too, is late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. So people who are in a UX practice generally would bring that age average down quite a bit. Not that there's anything wrong with being in your late 60s or 70s, but bringing some new energy to that space would be awesome. But my reason really is this is the most interesting field work you will ever do. <laughs> um, it's so fascinating to see the range of people who take part in the yeah. civic process. Um, we really encourage people to, to try to do that kind of work. Um, many uh, municipal election administrators are actually looking for help and can't really afford very much help. And so there may be design work that you could volunteer to oh, yeah. help with. Yeah. If you come in with the right attitude of just yeah. offering open services, not going in saying, I know how to do your job better yeah. than you do, but to say, is there anything mm -hmm. I can do uh, to make your work easier, I have these skills. Uh, you will often be invited in, and um, uh, you can also get some practice that way, working on some things that you might not get to. Mm -hmm. um, so there are those those couple of things, <clears throat> but there are two other bits that we've uh, we have we've learned about over the last few years. Um, one is this idea of a voting party. Uh, in the U.S., in the example that I gave about the San Francisco ballot, you'd have a dinner party where you invite your neighbors and friends, and you'd split up the questions on the ballot, and each person would do homework on each thing, and then you would come have a dinner party again, maybe multiple, uh, where people came back and reported out the homework that they had done in a nonpartisan, objective yeah. mm -hmm. way so that each person can focus on a particular candidate or party or question. Those are fun and, and you know, you get to know your neighbors and that can be really fruitful. I imagine that's a, that's a good solution for, for privileged voters. Yeah. But I guess it's a bit more of a struggle for the burdened voters. Well, 
There are almost always in communities where there are burdened voters, um, sort of trusted community leaders, you know, that that person who everyone calls auntie, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, but she's not necessarily related to everyone. Um, and if that person set up a, an interaction like that, maybe as a community meeting or potluck, mm-hmm. uh, you could you could get some really awesome stuff done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's that. Uh, but the main thing is you need to have a plan. Uh, and so uh, little clusters of UX people in their communities could create little flyers with checklists mm. and make their own plans for voting to say, I'm going to vote on this day at this time mm. in this way. Um, and this is what I need to do that uh, and distribute those mm. little checklists. But more importantly, make a plan for yourself and help somebody else make a plan and make sure that they get a ballot in their hands and that they get to vote. That's really good. We're going to have to do an election template for this September. Definitely, yes. That would be really good. I love the the concreteness of these uh, suggestions because sometimes I get invited to like these 24-hour brainstorming camps. <laughs> How do we solve the problems of the world? And you sit inside brainstorming. <laughs> and it's, it's really stupid, isn't it? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, just... <laughs> volunteering at a polling station i mean that you can't get more concrete than that that's how you learn stuff yeah and as you say go in with an open mind yeah without prejudice yeah thank you so much for sitting down with us dana thank you very much for <laughs> having you. me it was fun so i did laugh james when you said that america is so broken and just now last night uh, we're coming out of the swedish general election how do you feel about sweden then uh, how broken are we <laughs> oh god we're yeah it's it's so fascinating to be able to to listen to this listen back to this interview just before our general election mm. and then go through our voting process yesterday mm. uh, and and you know contrast those two worlds of of the american democratic system and the challenges it's facing and our democratic system and the challenges we face yeah and and i think you know when i've i've learned so i've reflected so much and learned so much about this that um, you know, voter turnout in the U.S. Um, now, I think last time was 56% um, of those that are eligible to mm. be, to have the right to vote. Um, and whereas here in Sweden, what are we on? We're on like mid 80s. Yeah. Um, one, so, of, one of the highest in the world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah if you look at the graph of it, yeah. I think we can link to the Pew research about this. Yeah. You know, Sweden is like only beaten by Belgium when it comes to how high turnout we have. Mm. And, and the gap between these two numbers is so, so small. Mm. Whereas the USA, the gap between people who potentially could vote and people who do vote is the biggest, almost the biggest in the world. Mm. Um, so that, that's a really important thing to reflect on. It's like um, the, the work that Dana's doing in getting, in removing friction mm. around... Um, getting people to actually register yeah. is a very, very important step for the U.S. Mm. Because in Sweden, I mean, we don't have to register. We get uh, sent by post our voting cards, and we use those and go to our polling place. Everyone just gets it. We just get sent it. Yeah, automatically, when yeah. you turn, if you've mm. turned 18 during the previous yeah. um, electoral period, mm. at the next election, you will get a card. Mm. And the card, I mean, for me, I've become Swedish during my time living here mm. and i used to get a card that said i'd write to vote in two of the elections because mm. we have elections on three levels at the general election um three democratic levels um you know local district and then national mm. and i used to be able to be allowed to vote in the bottom two 
the regional and district. Yeah. Uh, whereas now I get a card that says all three. All this happened automatically yeah. when I became Swedish. Yeah. Um, so we don't have any friction when it comes to um, registering for vote. If you're registered in the system, and pretty much everyone is here. Mm. And if you go to your local polling place, you don't even need to bring your voting card. You just need to bring ID. And that is even the case if you're pre-voting somewhere. You only need to bring ID, which mm. is amazing. I mean, there's so little friction to actually go out and vote. Yeah, mm. uh, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, we've almost eliminated mm. friction um, in definitely we're registering. Mm. And, and even with the, um, when you go into the, the, the voting um, offices, offices to, to place your vote, mm. um, I, I was reflecting yesterday about how, um, well, here in Sweden, you pick pieces of paper. You have a piece of paper that you pick. Um, and you don't even have to write anything. You just have to pick the, the, the piece of paper for your party. Which has the logo printed on it as well as the name. So yeah. you don't... Mm. E- I'm okay, Sweden has very, very high literacy rates. Mm. So you, you, but you don't need to be able to read. Mm. You just need to be able to recognize the logo. You don't um, need to be able to put an X on anything because you just no. put the piece of paper in an envelope. There are three mm. different colors mm. for the three different levels. Mm. It's um, um, blue, yellow, mm. and white, mm. which even if you're colorblind, these work. So there's some mm. there's some very there's very you know very very low barriers mm. in many many different ways, but thinking reflecting and thinking about some of the talks that you've done, per and w- what we've even said in the show mm. about how if you remove friction too much, mm. remove, remove too much friction, it becomes dangerous in itself. Yeah. In the sense that actually now there's so little friction, you're opening up to voter fraud. Yes. Mm. And we, we, I've read this, I mean, in the UK, for example, there, there's been a few, uh, quite a few examples of how um, postal valets, especially of elderly, mm. um, have been um, manipulated. People have been knocking on doors saying, you know, I, I can help you fill in your postal ballot. Mm. And then they're filling in for their party, not necessarily the party that person would, would vote for. Right. Um, so, so reducing friction opens the door. Um, but, you know, then you've got to look at the unbalance. Where do you, where do you put your effort? In the USA, completely understandable. Mm. Remove friction to registering because registering is such a problem. Sweden? No, I think maybe the focus has to be elsewhere in the process. Probably, yes. And I'm thinking now about, when you when you say friction, I'm thinking now about all these voting guides you have online, voting compasses uh, that sort of quiz you into asking maybe 20 or 30 questions. And then it tells you which party you mostly agree with. And those are the people you should vote for, basically. And the problem with that is, of course, that you're leaving it to algorithms to decide who you mostly agree with. And it depends on who programmed the algorithm. Uh, yeah, you're at the mercy um, of the whim of the programmer or the design team. Right. So, I, so I it's, think back, pe- it's back to us. <laughs> yeah, people are being recommended all the time to do these quizzes. But that means that you're taking away yet another, st- another <laughs> step in the process of friction. You're not even expecting people to read up on the different policies that the different no. parties have. And also, you've got to look at the motivation of why some of these media companies are providing these tools. Mm. Some of them are doing it for public service, arguably, mm. but they're probably driving metrics for visitor numbers. And some of the other commercial stations and commercial papers, they're driving um, clicks to support advertising. Yeah. So, you know, you've, you've, the motivation necessarily isn't to help you choose. Mm. It's to kind of get people to come to the site. Mm. Um, but... Um, you know, I love the link. We're linking this. Okay, Dana said about, you know, what difference can we make? We can go out and help um, a volunteer. Mm. But at the same time, you can look at the research she's done and others have done about um, complexity of ballots mm. and language. And these are the same things that we think about and need to think about when we're designing 
like online forms. We know that the more fields that you include in the form, the lower success rate you have, the lower conversion you have for the form, yeah. completion rates, abandonment that goes through the roof. So when you've got like the, the example she used from, um, from um, San Francisco with like, what was it, 40 odd questions. Yeah. That, you would never do that on a web form. We wouldn't, we wouldn't recommend as designers that you would implement that as a sign-up form or a, you know, as your main mm. goal for the website. And I mean, that's essentially the problem. When people speak about direct democracy, it depends, of course, how you implement it. And if you have one ballot with 40, almost 40 questions on it, how do you even expect people to be aware of all the issues that they're supposed to vote on? I mean, the, my biggest takeaway from this is, yes, we have a lot of Western democracies, but they all work in completely different ways when it comes to the most important thing that is the basis of the democracy, the election process. How do mm. we elect the officials that represent us? Mm. And it's so different. And even in the US, then it's so different even across the different states. So when you move between states, you have to figure out how does it work here? And I, mm. and I love how all this is yet mm. again, that reminder about people are so different. There are mm. so many various you know, behaviors and ways that people interpret and use information. Mm. And, and, and elections are one of those moments where we get to, we, we, we get to test something on entire populations and see how they mm. react and respond to things. Yeah. And, and that, that is incredibly valuable for us as, as designers to, to, to reflect on and think about the work we do and the work that goes on in democracy and how these two interplay. And speaking of research, I mean, coming up in our next episode, we talked to user research expert Sid Harrell, who has worked with Dana at the Center for Civic Design. And as a teaser for our interview with Dana, uh, or with the Sid, uh, we asked why her work in voter research felt so important to her. You said, I have never felt more like a UX designer than when I did research for the Center for Civic Design. And that seemed to resonate with me, obviously, but with a lot of people who retweeted that and also wrote it on Twitter. I mean, why do you think that was, both that it felt like that for you and why it resonates with so many? The goal was so clear and the impact on people's lives was so clear. If people can get good information about elections in an unintimidating way, it's it's far down sort of in the stack, right? <laughs> if you can get that good information and you can really be sure of the way that you want to vote and you can get access to the ballot and you know you have clear information about how voting takes place in your jurisdiction, then hopefully you can participate. And so mm. it feels like it's a very deep piece of people's lives and mm. at the same time uh, six years ago when we did this most of these websites were pretty bad yeah. <laughs> you know didn't meet that standard and not really through the fault of the officials who made them like, these are people who are understaffed and underfunded and and work really hard to do their best um, and have actually been really friendly to you know talk about these things as well so they it, it's sort of a perfect research situation where you have a, a, a body of, can't call them clients, right? They weren't paying us, but a body of product owners yeah. who want to improve. You have a body of users who have a really important task that impacts their lives, mm. and it actually is a problem that's addressable by design. Mm. Sometimes w in government spaces, we run into something that's like, well, we really need a better policy rather than just a new service design or something. Often they go hand in hand. Mm. And the goal is so crystal clear, so you know what you're working for. And yeah. sometimes that's missing, I think, from a lot of projects. Definitely. Yeah. 
Thank you for listening. We love to hear from you. If Twitter or social media isn't your thing, then you can email us at um, hey at uxpodcast.com. And that's the, the, the Swedish one with H-E-J, or the, um, the, the English-British regular one with H-E-Y. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. Knock, knock. Who's there? Eva. Eva who? Eva, you're deaf or your jaw, but is it working? <laughs> and I was. I couldn't hear what you said, so I was deaf. <laughs>